This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are some of the key performance management challenges facing government today? How are other governments around the world using performance management? And what are some of the key international trends in government performance management? I had an opportunity to discuss these questions and more with my colleague, John Kaminsky, senior fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. John shared many of his insights as a panelist at this year's American Society of Public Administration, ASPA, conference in Washington, D.C., and that's where I caught up with him. John Kaminsky, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much, Michael. So, John, what brings you to the ASPA annual conference? Well, I have been attending the conference. Actually, this is my 41st year, the uh, anniversary of the first, con- first conference I attended was in 1978. Where was it? Uh, in Baltimore. So they're held around the country, and it just uh, coincidentally, this one is here in D.C. Now, do you always, when you attend, are you always a panelist? Uh, not always. Um, five years ago, when it was held here, I was one of the co-organizers of the conference. And so that was a very different dynamic. So I know you were uh, involved in a panel of uh, two panels for this, uh, this conference. I want to talk about the panel... On performance, is it? Yes. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the panel discussion? What maybe maybe the way I'd like to frame it is: What did you present? What perspective did you present? What are some of the highlights of that um, that presentation? And and then after that, I'll do a follow on around some of your participants, some of your colleagues that were on the panel with you. Okay. Uh, The overall uh, panel theme was what are some of the key challenges in performance management? And so that was the approach that each of the panelists took. Um, Phil Joyce uh, was the kickoff panelist, and he looked at the historic trends in the evolution of the use of performance budgeting uh, and the link between performance and uh, the use of it in the budgeting process. Uh, Catherine Green, or uh, Catherine Barrett, I'm sorry, from Barrett and Green, um, talked about some of the major challenges facing uh, states and localities and some of the progress that they're making because they, as uh, journalists, cover the state and local scene. Uh, I talked about some of the international trends in performance management, and uh, Shelley Metzenbaum talked about some of the U.S. Uh, federal trends. Right. So let's talk about yours. What countries, you mentioned international, and I was wanting to get a sense of what were the countries that you uh, you talked about 
What prompted your interest in identifying those countries, and what were some of the findings? Uh, where I started was what are some of the over uh, an overview of some of the common challenges, and then I took those common challenges sort of overlaid across five countries. Uh, the countries were scientifically chosen by my having visited them in the past <laughs> few years. <laughs> Uh, or have been in presentations, et cetera, with them. So I have some familiarity on the ground of what's going on in these countries. And then my wrap-up was uh, what's some of the changes that we can anticipate in the future based on some of the trends we saw. So I, I had uh, focused on five challenges. One is the emphasis uh, on the supply of information versus the demand for information, that that's a challenge of, of, of how do you create a demand for use of performance information. Uh, and the second was the degree to which a performance system tracks inputs, outputs, and results, because you actually need all of those uh, to have a full picture of understanding what's going on and also to actually manage, because you can't just start with outcomes, although that's where you want to wind up. Uh, the third was defining what is your unit of analysis. In the U.S., over the past 25 years, we had an emphasis initially on looking at the performance of a department or an agency. And then in the Bush administration, the emphasis shifted from the departments down to individual programs. And then they had the program assessment rating tool. And then in the Obama administration, they said, well, let's not focus on the individual programs, but rather how programs work together and let's organize instead around selected outcomes. And uh, what's been interesting is that this is the, the, the Trump administration is the first administration that it has kept the previous administration's framework. Okay. And so there's some continuity that uh, has allowed the development and maturity of this outcome-oriented approach. The third challenge is uh, linking performance information back to consequences. And the consequences can be either personal or program level or organizational or monetary, for, and that's tying to the budget, or reputational, uh, or you can also have emphasis of consequences around accountability or uh, emphasis of, of consequences around learning. And there's been a shift over time, philosophically, in the U.S. system is shifting from accountability more towards learning, which has been good because if you focus on using performance information to learn, then people begin sharing, and, and as opposed to trying to only filter information. And by using it for learning, uh, you wind up building uh, for the future is what's going on. And then finally, the, the final uh, challenge that I, that I uh, framed was this need to link the performance information, the performance system to other administrative routines, to other professional domains. So how do you link it to budgeting and to finance and to personnel and to contracts and grants and evaluation and data systems? And that, that linkage is important because each one of these other elements have a role in improving overall performance. So you can't just focus on performance information and performance measurement. It's in the context of how government works. And so this is tying all these together is something that's going to be, I think, in a major next step and, and hasn't been uh, uh, yet uh, tackled. You know, when you think of those five challenges, uh, you, you have to mention this, the countries that you were 
looking at, the ones you've been to and seen um, actually on the ground. Um, I was wondering, did you did some of your presentations, some of your research, does it factor in how each one of these countries performs in tackling each one of these challenges? Well, that's right. Trying to put a bit of a lens on it, I did not was not able to get get, get get in to be able to peg it down uh, precisely. But the differences in the countries, is some of them are, are very large. The countries are India, okay. which is 1.3 billion, New Zealand, which is 5 million. Uh, you have Canada, which is you know, one-tenth the size of the United States. Uh, Saudi Arabia, which is about 20 to 25 million. And then China, which is, what, 1.2 billion. So, so it's, it's and the, the interesting other thing is that there's a distinction between authoritarian yes. governments and democratic governments. And the, the other interesting thing was that many of the drivers in democratic governments, ironically, are also drivers in, for why you're doing performance measurement in authoritarian governments. Uh, what I thought was very interesting in both Saudi Arabia and China, doing performance measurement was to increase citizen trust in government and the legitimacy of the government in delivering services, which is very similar to what's going on here in the United States. And I thought, I, I hadn't expected that when I, when I stood back and looked at these uh, different case studies. So, you know, when you think about the different forms of government, and that's a really diverse grouping that you the five that you talked about. What, if I could ask you to give me some, uh, as a listener, what are some unique aspects of each one? Okay. Well, part of this is evolution over time. Okay. So, for example, in uh, India, they started in 20, 2009, and Prajit Trivedi, yeah. uh, you know, our visiting fellow, uh, was appointed the um, Secretary for Performance Management uh, by the uh, Prime Minister, uh, Mohammed uh, Singh. And he created a performance management division and created a performance uh, monitoring and evaluation system and a results framework for agencies and uh, like contracts, results uh, framework documents for each agency. Uh, and so there was a system that he put in place the unit of analysis was agencies. It was a scorecard system. Uh, they were all developed in the context of the five-year national plan that was done by another agency. So, so they had this, this construct, and, and they had a 100-point scorecard, and agencies would earn points, and there was weights given to the value or the importance of different elements. And uh, the new prime minister, uh, uh, Naharan uh, Modi, came in in 2014, and he jumped the whole thing. Oh, he did? Okay. Yeah. He, oh. Well, he basically let it wither. But what he did is he, he, radic was, he abolished the uh, National Planning Commission, a 65-year-old agency, and said, we're not going to do five-year plans anymore. Well, we're going to instead uh, focus, and because of the five-year plan, they also identified the projects that would be funded and all this. So it was a very powerful agency. He disbanded it and replaced it with a small unit that's a think tank. It was called the National Institute for Transforming India. And it became a resource center and a knowledge hub for policy and implementation. So it was very agile. And the sh emphasis was shifted from agency accountability to looking at interagency collaboration and dashboards on joint projects, very much like our cross-agency priority goals here in the U.S. And they were organized around the eight 
themes that he campaigned for a law office on. And uh, that's not quite the way ours works. Ours does not focus on that. Ours tends to be much more at the administrative yeah. or at the lower level. So he organized it, and what he did is he had uh, teams of, or groups of agencies, and he asked the agency heads to develop their plans that would help achieve these goals. So he or had like eight groups around his eight uh, campaign themes and asked them to develop what the measures would be and measure and the targets. And then he held them accountable for quarterly coming back to him and telling him what the progress is. So it wasn't that he imposed on them what they were to do. He just said, this is the, the vision that I have. Go make it happen. And they organized, and he said, you hold yourselves accountable for what you're going to deliver. And But he personally meets with them uh, uh, to uh, encourage their, their movement forward. So I found that yeah. to be very, it was a completely different approach than the previous prime minister and the previous system. But the previous was creating a supply of information. This one is creating a demand for That's information. An and it's also creating a focus on outcomes as opposed to process. So uh, there, there, that, there, there's a, this dramatic shift but doing these kinds of shifts is is really hard because it takes years to be able to shift gears and put a new system in place. Well, you think of a 65-year-old agency yeah. that was, I mean... That was very powerful. Anything else, um, maybe about China? Well, in China, at the national level, there is a commitment from the 19th Party Congress to move towards performance budgeting. But that was only a few months ago. So they haven't quite gotten into it, but they know that this is the next five years they're going to be moving in that direction. They don't have uh, the elements in place. Some agencies are, are uh, more mature than others. Uh, when I was there, I was at a conference, and they, they showcased some of the agencies were, that were doing good stuff. Um, I would not say they're as far along as uh, some other countries that I've seen. And they're not doing cross-agency collaboration or stuff like that that I was that I was aware of, but I did get as the second part of the conference we drilled down to one city, and uh, Hangzhou, which is the size of New York City. So it's and when you compare it to New Zealand as a country, it's like twice the size of New Zealand. So, but. Hangzhou, 20 years ago, started to do performance measurement. They were, they're the cutting edge in the uh, country around the use of performance uh, information. But what really struck me was that they, and the other thing is that because it's a communist system, you have a mayor and then you have the party secretary, the local party secretary. The local party secretary outranks the mayor. So they created this performance system that's under the control of the party secretary. So it's like an independent agency assessing what's going on in the city government. And then they score them. And the cadre, the men, the political members, wind up, it, it, there's real personal consequences to whether their agencies perform or not. So there's a real focus on, you know, what are we doing? What I thought was really interesting was that as they, over the years, developed their performance system, they have shifted over the years to a greater and greater emphasis on citizen feedback. So today, as they score each agency, it's a, it's, so the agency is the unit of analysis, over 50% of the score is based on citizen satisfaction. And what they've done, and, and I mean, the other parts are, did they meet their performance targets? But that's 40, and that's 45 points, so that's a big deal. But 50% of it is citizen uh, feedback. 
the, and I asked them how do they do the feedback, and they do, you know, they, they'll use electronic surveys. They use in-person surveys for underserved areas that may not be electronic or for different demographics. So they really, and and their surveys, and I thought it was funny, says, well, we, we survey like 150,000 households. And I said, well, what's the response rate? Oh, 97%. It's voluntary. <laughs> Man, you compare that to an equivalent survey in New York City five years ago, and it was like 15%. Feet. Yeah. But if you compare the, what they're doing in terms of their investment of time and staff, I mean, they have 40 staff on this commission that, that's doing the oversight. And so what they've done is they've really invested far more than I've seen in any American city uh, in uh, developing a performance management system, using it to track what's going on, using feedback, constant citizen uh, engagement uh, in, in terms of feedback. And they have a lot of different ways of doing it. Uh, it's, it's not just surveys. They also do in-person stuff and they have uh, like an ombudsman where people can come in. So there's a, and, and they have this open TV channel where people can come in and comment. So they've got a lot of different things. And I was asking them why. And I said, this is, gets back to the legitimacy and trust. But they also found that by doing this, it created a sense that this is a government that probably doesn't have a lot of corruption, and it attracted the tech industry. And so Hangzhou has become sort of like the Silicon Valley uh, for China. And so that's where the major companies have located, because they th we think we can do business here. So the result of their performance system and their approach to it has had economic benefits, to the, the, the city, which I found was really uh, completely uh, something that I Have saw. Was, no, I've never seen that anywhere else. And and uh, so other cities in China are beginning up, hmm, maybe we might want to do something like this. So as opposed to it being, there, there is uh, some stuff that's being imposed from the top down, like the uh, incoming performance budgeting system and stuff that's coming from the bottom up. But uh, as this evolves, I'm going to be very interested in seeing how this expands beyond uh, just uh, the city of Hong might be outside the scope of what you looked at, mm -hmm. and it may be more of an opinion. But will because the, the performance budgeting is coming from on high, will that uniqueness of Hangzhou be able to stay stay uh, sort of the way it's doing things with, or will it will they will it be a cookie cutter approach, or will there be? It's undefined. It's yeah, they have not defined it, and which I think is probably a That's good thing. thing. And and they may allow each. Uh, pre uh, province or something to develop their own approaches. And they will have sometimes a, a mandatory thing, but then allow uh, provincial uh, variation and stuff on, on how they do it. Is there anything else you wanted to share in terms of like maybe New Zealand or is there? Well, what's, what's interesting is New Zealand was always been a pioneer in government reform uh, from the mid to late 80s. And uh, they tend to be further along. Uh, uh, typically, and it may be because of the scale, because they're so small, they can be nimble, they can shift. And they, uh, in the 1980s, all the way through the early 2000s, had a very agency-centric approach, what we were calling performance-based organization. They had that, and their entire government was run in a, a principal agent uh, approach where the head of the agency was a career executive, or a career person, but appointed and on term contract and he or she was held to the uh, provisions of the contract, and they were given flexibility, all that kind of stuff. But they realized that it created a very stovepiped government with people just responding to what was in their contracts. And, and I talked to some of the 
uh, agency heads, and they're saying they, they come and said those 45 page contracts they couldn't manage. They were just responding to all these requirements that were in their contract. So they so the, the government realized that they had created a very rigid system by creating so much emphasis on accountability and delivering not results, but delivering outputs. The, the theory was the results were the, the packaging and design of the policies by the political people and that the uh, agency people would only be responsible for delivering the outputs. That changed uh, in 2012. Uh, they moved from an agency-centric approach to much more uh, picking selected outcomes. And that was the report that we did uh, a few years ago about uh, the 10 uh, uh, results-oriented, cross-cutting uh, results. And in New Zealand, uh, that approach uh, was interesting in that, that the minister councils, political, chose 10 specific cross-cutting issues that were important to New Zealanders. So it's like reducing the number of people that are on unemployment uh, for uh, more than 12 months, uh, increasing the participation in early childhood education, uh, increasing childhood immunization and reducing the, the, the rate of rheumatic fever. So there were very specific, measurable targets that they had. They were over a five-year time frame. And they said they didn't want a whole bunch of agencies. But they knew that it needed to be like three to five departments in each of these 10 clusters that they could hold accountable. And they held them jointly accountable as opposed to individually accountable because they had to work together. And, and so they did that. They actually beat their targets. Oh. And so they said, well, let's do this again. And so they came up with another round of five-year targets. Then there was an election, a new prime minister, and she hit the delete button. And so they're in the process of developing a new approach. And, and the reason she hit the delete button, she says, I don't want to do this in just 10 areas. What I want to do is go to scale. I want to do this uh, by restructuring the way the entire civil service works and the way the government works. I want to break down the silos. I want to institutionalize shared outcomes. I want joint ventures. So this is out, or at least the last that I was connected with what was going on, was out for uh, comment. And so when they get this back and repackage it and come up with a plan, this could be very interesting to see. But, but, but it's interesting that they went from agency-centric to much like the U.S., uh, something like cross-agency priority goals and targeted areas to something like, let's redo how we do government. Seems like China, I mean, well, India. Like well, India I don't know. It, it, well, India is is yes, it's much more Similar. like like India. So, so I don't know how that's going to evolve. That's that's a story that's not yet uh, complete. You mentioned Saudi Arabia. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about yes. that? Yes. Well, I visited there uh, a couple times over the past five years. Uh, but what's happened is that in 2016, so just a couple years ago. Uh, the country's new leadership with the, the crown prince and all that released a five-year visionary plan. And so Saudi Arabia 2030. And to do that, they created a new performance unit to oversee the implementation uh, of this five-year plan. And then it's called the National Center for Performance Measurement. And they really invested. They have a staff of like 140. They didn't draw anybody from the civil service. They went to the outside. They said, what we want to do is something that's much more agile, like a private sector company. We don't want a bureaucracy uh, that they've got. So uh, they, and the unit reports directly to the prime minister 
and it has a governing board that's chaired by the crown prince. So it is really at the top of the government that they have invested 140 staff and they keep on planning on growing it. And the, what they're doing is, is three things. One is they're tracking progress towards the overall Saudi uh, uh, Arabian uh, 2030 goals. And they're reporting these uh, progress uh, things to the prime minister and the council uh, of ministers. And they're using dashboards and quarterly uh, reports. And, but it's for each uh, agency. So it's agency-based. Uh, the second thing they're doing that I think is really interesting is strengthening each agency's capacity to conduct uh, performance measurement and to analyze. So they're going into each agency and they have created a training unit. They've trained over 2,000 people so far. And what they're going to do now is train the trainers and move them into the agencies. And I've never seen that done on that scale anywhere. And then the third thing is they want to begin doing public reporting. They, all this is, the, the culture of that government is you, you don't deal much with the public uh, on some of this stuff. And so what they want to do is start reporting publicly on how government operates. And uh, they claim they're going to create a public-facing version of the metrics that they're already doing uh, sometime this year uh, and start piloting uh, with the public. And the metrics that they're collecting are three levels. One is outcome-based, which is towards the, the uh, 2030 goals. The other is execution level. So they're, what's the progress uh, on, on intermediate uh, outputs? Uh, on, so it's more project-oriented. And then the third, which I think is interesting, is service level. And because it's a unitary government, it's what are, how are services being delivered in cities? So it gets in the city uh, customer satisfaction, beneficiary satisfaction with services, et cetera. And, so, and, it, and it's satisfaction with services that are delivered nationally as well as uh, services like 311 pothole filling and all that kind of stuff. The national center oversees the framework and the capacity building and the agencies are responsible for their own operational data and that sort of gets gets rolled up. What's also interesting is that the director of this National Center for Performance Information, in addition to reporting to the Prime Minister, in addition to reporting having the Crown Prince chair his uh, oversight board, is he now sits on the Kingdom's Strategic Management Committee and the Budget Committee. Oh. So he's being placed in a very strategic position to actually ensure that performance information is used. We'll continue our discussion on global trends in government performance management when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. 
Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. So, John, uh, the last country you mentioned uh, is Canada. What's going on there? For well, uh, well, I've been watching Canada for like more than 20 years, and they go through these fits and starts of creating systems for measuring performance that are traditionally one-size-fits-all, standardized approach, and they tend to be agency-centric as opposed to outcomes. They have a strong emphasis on what they're calling horizontal government, reaching across agency boundaries. But the, the, the traditional emphasis for their system is around accountability, not so much around learning. And so uh, back in 2016, uh, they created a new what's called policy on results. And they established a results and delivery unit right in the uh, Privy Council office, which is like the White House, off, the office of the White House. And they created a, a results division in the Treasury Board, which is kind of like our Office of Management budget, roughly. And the Parliament created a oversight committee called the Agenda Results and Communications Committee to focus on results. So for the first time, they, it wasn't just an administrative uh, um, uh, initiative. It was something that was embedded in both the, the in all three level three areas, and uh, they then created a one-stop website, much like our performance.gov. And you go in, and it's called GC Infobase. It's a really catchy name, uh, and it has uh, information around financial information, people information, and then results information. They use infographics to uh, get the uh, ideas across. Um, their goal was to improve the achievement of results across government and increase public understanding of results that the government's trying to uh, achieve. It's a lot less rigid framework than their predecessor, but it's still, when you look at it, there, there's a lot of standardization still involved. And I don't know whether agencies are, what they did is that they started with seven departments that volunteered to be first uh, to, to uh, help set up this system. And they have the de departmental results framework, which is, I guess, somewhat like our strategic plans and operating plans, some, somewhere in between uh, something like that. But they call it results uh, framework. And then they've also done a program inventory. So much like, um, it's not so much the, the Bush approach on program assessment, but to do a program inventory, which... Ironically, Congress in 2010 directed the Office of Management Budget to create a program inventory for the U.S. government, and it never worked. Yeah. Um, there were too many different conceptual versions. What, what defines of, a program? What, well, <laughs> well, yeah. And so what I'll be interested in when I go visit uh, is to ask them, how do you define a program and, and stuff? So, But what, where they're at now, they're still in, in progress of setting the system up as they say that they have 1,599 results with 2,747 indicators with a red, green, and yellow scorecard for each of the 2,747 indicators, and they're arrayed by agency. So the what they have created is, at least 
from an outsider's perspective, looks very complex yeah. and very detailed. So I'm curious as to how it's received and whether people are finding this information overload or it's actually helpful. Do they use it to manage? So, so I'm, I'm, but they're, they're still in the progress of implementation. When I talked to the head of the results uh, uh, framework unit and treasury board, he's somebody that's really committed and very uh, excited about, uh, he said this has got to be the best job he's ever had in his life. So I'm interested in seeing how this evolves. So I have a question, you know, mentioned India and how the prime minister, the new at the time, the new prime minister came in and switched the direction of performance. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned the PM in New Zealand mm-hmm. and, and how she jettisoned the old structure, if you will. Did the Canadian experience, was that related to the to Trudeau's? I, or I is don't this something know. That was, I, okay. yeah, I don't know. I was wondering yeah, about that. I mean, that. it seems to... Time, time wise, it's uh, aligned, but I don't know. I haven't, okay. I, again, I haven't uh, yeah, asked them that gonna, directly. We'll yeah. bring you back when you find out. Okay. Yeah. But the other question I had for you, John, is you were doing this research, and, and um, is there anything, did you take any time reflecting mm-hmm. uh, what the what we what the states can what we could learn yeah. from these various examples well, it, it, the, ours, and that's where Shelley's sure. uh, comes in, is that the, the, Really neat thing is that in the 25 years or so that the U.S. has been going through the use of performance measurement and management, this is the first time there's been continuity and a shift between administrations. And the, the, what it means is you don't have to spend two to three years building a new system, staffing it, training people. You, you Instead, the uh, incoming administration two years ago is using the system to get its, uh, its goals done as opposed to building a system. So, Were they required to do that? Was there a law? Was well, it the, that, well, that was the thing that's interesting is the 2010 uh, Modernization, uh, uh, Modernization Act put it into statute. Okay. But that didn't stop the uh, Bush folks from, they almost jettisoned uh, GPRA's statutory requirements. They just sort of complied with them, but their emphasis was on the program assessment rating tool. And somebody, nobody knew what was going to happen when the new administration came in. And so that there's some continuity and they're much like you don't jettison the budget process every time there's a president, you just use it and you use it to achieve your objectives. That's what's happening now. And so that kind of con, and if you look at the evolution of the performance.gov website, the all the criticisms that happened when it was being built during the eight years of the Obama administration have largely vanished. They have that website is just like you can find things. It's readable. It, it you know they, they still have one major problem, which is all their progress stuff is locked into a PDF file, and so you have quarterly updates that are PDF files for 14 cross-agency goals and 85 agency priority goals. If you only care about those goals, that's okay. But if you're looking, trying to make some sense across, having PDFs is is problematic. The uh, law that was passed, the Foundations on Evidence-Based Government, is going to require all government agencies, including this website, to have machine-readable data in the next couple of years. So that, that... issue of it being locked in a PDF will go away. And and they know that. It's just a matter of maturity and being... A, but now that it has at least a, a standard look and feel, it's not the content, but the standard look and feel, and you're able to navigate it really well, and you can find stuff, is just remarkable. Yeah. 
So actually, let me pick up on that. The evidence, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that new law? Sure. And how does it, I guess, does it, how does it play within the performance yeah. in culture? Well, let me stand back a little sure. bit. I, what I'm seeing is this evolution. As I'm talking about supply versus yeah. demand, the, the, some of the challenges up front, there's going to be continued emphasis uh, on accountability, uh, both internal and external. And there will probably be more reporting and scorecards and league tables and stuff like that and concern and interest in consequences and, and uh, all that. The second thing that I'm seeing evolving, this started in the Obama administration, is growing emphasis on the use for learning. And that's where you're going to find, I think, uh, in coming years, real-time information being devolved to frontline managers. So this is not going to be something that happens in Washington like it does now, but you need the technology tools and stuff to be able to do that. And if you look at local government, this is going to be for service delivery. If you look at um, UPS, every truck driver has on uh, their electronic device what their metrics are. And they get pushed to them what the, the, what happened in the day before is sort of lessons learned of what do you need to do and where do you need to turn, et cetera. So if this, this is happening in the private sector where the frontline people are getting real-time performance information to inform what they do. And, I'm, and, and that's sort of the vision of what's going to happen with performance information, uh, and it's a learning approach uh, for response times or potholes or trash, and that's at the local level. So the third thing that I, I think is going to be the next step, and we're beginning to see this, is the evolution of the performance system to be able to predict. And so we're going to be able to predict events and patterns that allow prepositioning. So it's going to be the use of data. It's going to be the use of analytics. The, it's going to be the Internet of Things. It's going to be use of artificial intelligence, uh, behavioral science. And we're already doing this with weather and uh, traffic congestion management, and, and there's sentiment analysis that's occurring around large-scale events so that you can know if there's going to be a riot that's going to occur or something like that. They're using it in some agencies to predict areas where homelessness may occur, like if there's going to be a major shutdown or, or, so, or something like that. They're using it in, in a lot of localities to predict neighborhoods where you want to preposition police because there's a potential for an increase in uptick in crimes, uh, property break-ins and stuff. We've got a report on that that we did on predictive policing. Uh, and 911 response times uh, and stuff. So, so this is happening where you're going to be moving performance information from merely learning and reacting to predicting. So that's sort of that. But the, the, the other big challenge that I think is going to be next, especially for the federal government, is how do you bring together all these different professional domains, the budget, the evaluation, the contracting, the grants, the program management, the performance measurement people, so they're working together. And, and that, I think, is going to be a major challenge given that there's, for each of these different laws and different systems and different expectations and different professional disciplines of how people have uh, been raised in, in those domains to be effective and, uh, and efficient in their work. I have a question around what you've seen. Mm -hmm. And it has to be, a, it's a leadership question. I was wondering if you could think about this. Given the five countries you're talking about, the efforts of those five countries, and, and, and also the work that you've um, studied here mm -hmm. in the States, what type of, what makes an effective leader in the performance management area? There's different kinds of leaders. Yeah. 
at the very senior level, it's largely painting a vision and giving people license to do things and then staying actively engaged with what's going on, what's going on, persistence and uh, in, in keeping. But that does not create a sustainable system. We saw, have seen that, that when the, uh, I mean, the, the Bush folks created a system and turned it over to the Obama folks and they just turned it off. So there's this notion of continuity is how do you create something sustainable? And what you need to do is have the line managers and the program managers and the mid-level people say, this is what, what we need to do our job. In the case of the uh, Bush uh, program assessment rating tool, it was seen as top-down driven and the people that were doing the work didn't see value of it. They knew that they were feeding stuff up, but it wasn't something that came back to them that they used to do their work. So the thing that I'm interested in seeing is how the Indian system evolves, because there it's the career people that have ownership over achieving the goals and working together. When their prime minister changes, do they say, we need to keep on doing this regardless of who the prime minister is, because this is how we do our work. And so to the extent that the career people become engaged and own this, those that core cadre of leadership of the senior executives, that's where I think you're going to see momentum uh, moving forward. Now, in the case of the shift from the, the Obama administration to the Trump administration, interestingly, the first year, there was not a deputy director for management in OMB, and the, the transition team did not impose some new idea on OMB. They allowed the career people to take what they had there, adapt it to Trump priorities, and then move forward. And so in that case, the career people saw value in the system that they had uh, that had developed during the course of the Obama years, and they didn't try to junk it. Yeah. So, you know, what? Uh, as you're finishing up your panel, what were you hoping to convey to the audience? Like, I just want to get a sense of how will they, if they're sitting there and they're academics or practitioners, what would you want? What did you want to leave with them? Well, I think that it wasn't just me, but the other yeah, panelists. The the sense that there is, this has been going on for twenty twenty five years. There is momentum. This momentum is global. Uh, that countries large and small are doing this in their own variations of ways. They've been doing this in many cases for a number of years. And that everybody is changing. It's still a learning. It's not like there's here's the one right approach. There is no one. It has to be done in ways that engage the political leaders as well as the career people. And it has to be done in a context that makes sense for them. And so what, what we saw, and, and that everybody is saying the next big challenge is how do we begin linking this to resource allocation? How do we begin not performance driven budgeting, but performance-informed uh, uh, performance budgeting. And uh, that this is, that, that we're beginning to see, for example, it, it, that the head of performance in Saudi Arabia is on the budget council. And that kind of, what will happen? Will, will, in fact, uh, budget decisions be better informed and uh, dis different kinds of decisions made because he has that role? Don't know. So, so and, and this is happening in other countries as well. So I think the, the next big thing, well, one thing is integrating all these different disparate, uh, disparate players uh, that are from different disciplines that have a common 
need for working together. But the other is, how do you begin actually using it to leverage decisions, both policy as well as budget? So, John, uh, what do you think the future looks like in this area? Well, I think it's hopeful. And it's not just in the U.S. Uh, The other thing that I think is interesting is that there's nonprofit engagement in this world for the first time uh, with foundations that have created advocacy groups, Results for America, the Bloomberg Foundation's uh, investment of uh, almost probably more than $100 million in creating capacity in mid-sized cities around the country. Their, their commitment is to, of the 300 uh, mid-sized cities in the country, they want to, uh, to uh, in, help 100 of them actually put in place the capacity to do good program uh, measurement and evaluation, et cetera. And by doing, they think the 100, it's going to begin leveraging the other's cities. So uh, there's ha- that that's happening there. And, and Results for America is working uh, with Congress to have set aside money for things uh, like a, a, a better uh, program evaluation. So the whole evidence th- uh, initiative is sort of merging with the program management initiative and you're bringing the evaluation world closer to the, the program uh, um, measurement world and stuff. That's great. Well, thank you, John. It's, uh, it's almost as if our listeners will, were in the room with you. This is wonderful. They, um, I want to thank you for joining me on the ASPA conversation series. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for inviting me. We'll continue our discussion on international public management with Dr. Geert Berkart, president of the International Institute of Administrative Sciences, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. How does the National Weather Service keep Americans safe by predicting extreme weather events earlier and with more accuracy? What are the National Weather Service's strategic priorities? How is the National Weather Service using technology and innovation to meet its mission? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Louis Uccellini, Assistant Administrator for Weather Services at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and Director of the National Weather Service. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Geert Burkhardt, President of the International Institute of Administrative Sciences. So, Geert, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, my name is Geert Burkhardt. I'm a professor at the University of Leuven. uh, I'm responsible for public management, public governance, research, teaching, uh, consultancy, and uh, I'm... predominantly focusing on comparative research within the OECD. And uh, that includes uh, financial management, performance management uh, in the broad sense, so including trust issues and the reform of the public sector to be fit for purpose for the future. Wow. Okay, great. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the um, IIAS. 
And yes. what are some of the, could you tell us, uh, uh, first off, could you give us a little bit about the history and yes. mission? IIS is a fascinating organization. It was founded in 1930. So it's actually the oldest um, global organization in uh, public administration. It was uh, part of the League of Nations uh, ambition, supported by the Belgian government to contribute to world peace. And the Belgian government wanted an international institute uh, focusing on the quality of the public sector to contribute to world peace. And so since 1930, we are based in Brussels, supported, uh, you know, hosted by the Belgian government. Uh, but we are international. That means we follow the coming from the League of Nations, which then became the United Nations. Um, we are recognized by the United Nations and we have member countries. So in my council of administration, we have countries and representatives of countries around the table, like India, China, Brazil, Finland, uh, Bahrain, uh, and so on. So it's a global organization that um, focuses on academics, but also top civil servants and a bridge between them to see how we can improve the public sector um, uh, worldwide. Mm -hmm. We are focusing on SDGs currently, so our strategy is how can we support our members and, and the general uh, societies to get uh, the SDGs, as, and as you may know, there are 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, how to make that happen um, in, in reality. So by 2030, the ambition of the United Nations is to realize the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, we, our next conference, because we have constantly conferences all over the world, our next one is in Singapore. Uh, and uh, the topic of the conference is effectiveness, accountability and inclusion, the three key t terms to realize the Sustainable Development Goals. So may I ask you a question about um, technology and public administration? And, and where I'm going with this is part of the conversation we had in our book was about the definition of work, how work is going to change. Because of uh, automated um, automation, uh, machine learning, AI. How... Have you given any thought to how these trends will impact the administration, uh, public administration in particular? Certainly. I think it's part of futures, the, our dimension of futures. So how to bring the future into the present as a kind of anticipation. And then um, I think uh, because technology is a broad, has a broad stretch, of course, it's about digital not just digital government, it's about digital society. society. Digital society, which is, in my opinion, um, let's say, uh, made substantial through databases. We are actually moving, I think, from organizations with databases, which may or may not be connected, to a coherent and connected set of databases with organizations. So it's actually a Copernical change. It's not organizations with databases. It will be the core of 
um, the go of government and the core of, because it's not just public sector, it's private sector, it's NGOs, the core of our systems will be connected databases and then surrounded by organizations. And that's a totally different concept, which means, for example, that the back office of the public sector, it doesn't make sense if it's federal, state or local, because you have one back office, which is guided by databases. Of course, you need legal frameworks to, to contain and to control that. You know, you need check, checks and balances in a way to do that. We don't have sufficient legislation for that, especially because it becomes also an international issue. You know, if you have databases on fingerprints or, or DNA or um, uh, financial flow, financial flows of money, uh, you actually have a kind of back office or a cloud which is beyond levels of government. We don't have sufficient international and national legislation to, to run that. And um, we probably, you know, have to pay attention to that. So the legal framework. And so for the future, if you talk about yeah. the future digital society, um, I think, and of course, artificial intelligence is connected to connecting databases because it's just algorithms that connect data uh, to take a decision or to develop a policy or to decide on an investment or to allocate a permit or whatever, you see that um, the databases are actually become the center of our systems. And um, the whole issue of public, private and not-for-profit will become a, a derived debate. But ultimately, we will need checks and balances. We will need division of responsibility and accountability mechanisms. So the major public administration principles will still apply. And so that will be a challenge uh, to... But we should not be afraid of that. And I think we need intelligent experiments on that and look for good practices and look for what works and what doesn't work. And what we need to make things work will not just be uh, knowledge, it will be change of attitudes and legal frameworks. And I think one element, one crucial element will be trust. Uh, will we, how can we build systems that we can trust? I think that will be a crucial issue. Um, you know, there are reasons to distrust <laughs> in some cases. And so we have to create circumstances and guarantees, checks and balances, accountability mechanisms to make sure people can trust systems work. I think that's a crucial element for research. Once they distrust systems, you know, it's difficult to rebuild it. Yeah. As, as I, think, I think it's also an, an, expression, an expression in English, uh, distrust, uh, go, you know, trust goes away on, on horseback and comes back on foot. And I think uh, we have to be very careful to experiment, but I think we need some experimentation to see what works and what doesn't work under what conditions. Uh, and so I think it's, it's not just a technical, uh, technological thing, it's actually an issue of attitudes vis-a-vis 
other types of systems. And, and I think we have to build in guarantees for our citizens that, you know, that when something goes wrong, one can intervene and w the standard operating procedures are certainly, you know, part of checks and balances and solid allocations of responsibilities and mechanisms of accountability. Mm -hmm. So, Geert, um, what, um, what advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public administration or public service? I think it's, that's a very good uh, question in the sense that I heard here some numbers about people studying uh, MBA or MPA. And there's an interesting figure, I think, uh, if I recall well, that uh, there were about 190,000 MBA students in the U.S. and about 20,000 MPA students. So that's quite a difference. Quite a difference, yes. And, and of course, one could say that the public sector also could use uh, uh, MBA people, which I, I certainly believe uh, on the condition that they think the public sector is part of the solution and so <laughs> have to build upon that. Uh, but my advice would be for young people to say, you know, be ambitious on the big things of society and believe that change is possible and believe in the future and start with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. I think young people should have the courage to change the world and we should give them courage to do that and, 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 and say, you know, look at the Sustainable Development Goals and build your, the future of your, your life in trying to contribute to that and uh, choose a study, a field of study, whatever it is really, uh, and uh, be part of a solution to realize the Sustainable Development Goals. That would be uh, an advice to the young American generation. Great, well thank you for stopping by today. Really appreciate you coming in. You're welcome, good luck. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.